0: 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've been going through 1 Corinthians each summer for a while now, and we're actually not in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We just finished 1 Corinthians chapter 6 the week before I went out of town. Um, So the reason we're in chapter 11 this Sunday is because we're going to be eating the Lord's Supper. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is kind of the passage about the Lord's Supper, and if we had stuck with our path through 1 Corinthians, um, I wasn't sure I would have time to do justice to the subject that was about to get opened up in chapter 7. Um, for one, it was interrupted, me being away last week, and then we have Lord's Supper this week. Next Sunday will be a normal Sunday, but the Sunday after that will be Move Up Sunday. And so I thought it might be good and helpful for us this month to ratchet forward a little bit to chapter 11. And so we'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, and we'll just sort of continue from here through August, and then we'll put 1 Corinthians aside until next summer, and we'll come back when I have plenty of time to get into chapter 7 and the things that are mentioned there. So that's a little explanation as as to what we're doing suddenly in chapter 11, for those of you who've been here with us and have been following along. Um, I'd like to pray before we get into God's Word. I always feel the need for God's um, miraculous work uh, during every sermon. And for some reason, I'm especially feeling it this morning. I don't know if it's because I've been away this last week, um, but I'm just very much feeling my own frailty and feebleness um, in the face of this passage and this task. So please pray with me. And, and I mean that genuinely pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, our Bibles are open and I ask that you would please open our hearts. Lord, please speak to us through your word with clarity and help us to understand and not just understand, but to be changed. And I pray that you would help me to serve your people well. Help me not to obscure any any beautiful truth in your word and especially not to twist any of the truth in your word. Or may it have its full effect upon us, on our thinking and our worldview, on our hearts and the way we feel about you and ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ. May it deepen our faith in your son. May it strengthen us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you very much. So, if you've not been with us throughout our time studying 1 Corinthians, I'll give you the very brief recap. The, first, the Corinthian church was deeply, deeply troubled and messed up. They had all kinds of issues. If you ever think that Doolin's Grove Church is not the perfect picture of church health, compare it to the Corinthian church, and you will feel immediately much, much better about the work that the Lord has done among us here. They had a lot of issues. There was a lot of divisions within the church and factions uh, for various reasons. There was a lot of arrogance in the church. Uh, There was a lot of immorality in the church, openly lived immorality that the church embraced and even boasted about and celebrated. Uh, When they had trouble with each other, they took the trouble to to pagan uh, legal courts rather than dealing with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, They had a lot of issues, and today we're jumping over some issues related to marriage and uh, how women are involved in church. Um, These are things that I'm looking forward to talking about, but it's going to have to wait. Now we're going to get to the issues they have with the Lord's Supper. They even had trouble with the Lord's Supper, and that's what we're going to see in our passage today. Rather than Actually, no, let's read through the whole passage. It's kind of lengthy. But I think it'd be good to read through the whole passage, get the whole flow of thought, and then we'll go back and look at the specific verses for this Sunday. So if you want to follow along with me in your Bibles or on the the wall here, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. He had just gotten done giving them a pat on the back about something and commending them for something they had done right. And then in verse 17, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread We would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So there you have the full train of thought. They were ruining the Lord's Supper. Now, I want you to picture them having the Lord's Supper, and I don't want you to picture what it looks like when we have the Lord's Supper. We're going to eat the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, and you'll be seated there in your pews, shoulder to shoulder, facing forward, and you're going to receive a tiny little cracker, and we're going to eat it all at the same time, and then you're going to receive a tiny little cup, and we're going to drink it all at the same time. Okay, that's going to happen. That's not how it looked when the Corinthians had the Lord's Supper. We don't actually know exactly what it looked like because the Bible never goes through a great deal of trouble to describe it. But we can glean a few things. Okay, I think from the passage and from some research, I think we should picture more like in the fellowship hall, only possibly the larger space. I think we should picture Christians gathered around individual tables, Okay, facing each other, and I think we should picture them eating an actual meal. Okay, not little symbolic pieces of a meal, but an actual meal together. Some people, you know, the people that are experts on these things, estimate there may have been around 100 people in the Corinthian church at this time. So a little larger than our group, um, all together, eating a meal around tables. That's what you should have in your minds, uh, not the more ceremonial, formal way that we go about it right now. Um, so with that in mind, look back at verse 20 through 21. Let's start to get a glimpse, get a bit of an understanding of what the problem is here. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What seems to be happening here is that in the Corinthian church, you have the wealthy believers and you have the poor believers. The wealthy believers are able to get there at their leisure, able to get started before the poor believers are able to get there. Uh, many of them may have been slaves needing to finish their work before they're able to arrive. The Wealthy people are there. They probably brought their food for the Lord's Supper and probably just went ahead and got started without them. The wealthier people being so well appointed with their food that they have enough that they could get drunk. The poorer people, so little food at their tables that they don't have enough even to satisfy their hunger. Now, the reason this is such a problem, we see in verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? See, in. In the way they were going about the Lord's Supper, they were revealing the fact that they despised the church of God. They were revealing the fact that they were looking down their noses with disdain at part of the church of God. And the result was a humiliation of those who had nothing. So picture in our fellowship hall, different tables of people gathered around, some raucous with laughter and someone with a big turkey leg and a big goblet of the wine, and just really enjoying their Lord's Supper. And right beside them, a table of of people who perhaps, some of which were slaves of the people at the rich table, with very little or nothing, feeling left out and humiliated. That seems to be the image that we get from this passage. It revealed their disdain for those with less in the church, and it resulted in humiliation of those with less in the church. And it was ruining the Lord's Supper. In fact, Paul says you're not even eating the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. And just because you have bread and wine or something that looks like wine does not make it the Lord's Supper. And just the fact that you're in a little bit going to have a little cracker does not necessarily guarantee that you are eating the Lord's Supper. I remember years ago, I think it was Will, but I might be wrong. It might have been Andrew Jameson. Um, before after youth, we were in the kitchen and they were thirsty and they grabbed grape juice out of the refrigerator and poured it in a cup and swigged it back. And I said, I think that was our communion juice for this coming Sunday. And of course, I made fun of them endlessly about it. Whoever it was, it didn't matter. But in that moment, did they mistakenly eat the Lord's Supper? No, he was just drinking some juice. Often that's all we're doing is just drinking some juice or eating a little cracker. What they were doing was not the Lord's Supper. Now, when he uses the word, the phrase, the Lord's Supper in verse 20, it's not like a technical term. The church didn't call it the Lord's Supper like we do. It wasn't a technical term. Uh, In fact, this might have been the first time it was used in reference to this meal. What Paul is doing is he's highlighting the fact that the supper you're eating doesn't belong to the Lord. He's not the host of the supper you're eating. On the contrary, he goes on in verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, his own supper. So you're not eating the Lord's supper, you're eating your own supper. The Lord is not the host of what you're doing, you're the host of your own little party here. And it's a problem because you're, In so doing, you're forgetting all about Jesus Christ and you're humiliating your brothers and sisters who don't have as much as you do. So because they were not humbly loving one another, they were not even really eating the Lord's Supper. As we look at this passage with fresh eyes, because I know I read verses 23 through 26 every time we eat the Lord's Supper, but we never really read the passages before and after it. It's kind of surprising, isn't it, to look at it with fresh eyes? This is the passage about the Lord's Supper. And it comes sandwiched in a correction to a selfish church. And it comes mainly with the idea of our horizontal relationship with one another being the problem with the way they participated in the Lord's Supper. Humble love for the church, it turns out, is essential to properly eating the Lord's Supper. Humble love for the church is central to what the Lord's Supper means. And when we do it, or at least the way I grew up doing it, it's a very private, sacred, vertical time. And though we're seated near each other, I'm in my personal prayer zone with the Lord. You do your thing, I am doing my thing. And there definitely is this vertical element to the Lord's Supper. But isn't it a little surprising how if we don't get the horizontal element right, it ruins it all? How I can be really, you know, praying and meditating on scripture during these moments when we pass the crackers and the wine, but if I am not humbly loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not even eating the Lord's Supper. It's completely ruined. Verses 23 through 26, we think of as the institution of the Lord's Supper. It's here as a correction for prideful selfishness in the church. You know, It starts off with the word for, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. You know, the cliche, if you see the word for, you got to look and see what it's there for. It's there to correct selfishness in the church. So Paul says, you guys are not even eating the Lord's Supper you, you don't even love one another. You're humiliating each other. Don't you remember where this came from? For I received what I got from the Lord, and it's this. And then he holds out what we read every time. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is about remembering and proclaiming. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what we're doing when we're eating and drinking the Lord's Supper is we're remembering and we're proclaiming Jesus' death. And apparently, based on Paul's flow of thought here, if we would actually be doing that, if we were actually remembering his death and proclaiming his death to one another, it would preclude any of this prideful selfishness, and it would bring about in us humble love for the church. The Lord's Supper is meant to work kind of like a refrigeration system for our faith and our fellowship. You know, these days it's so hot out, you go to the grocery store and you get your groceries and you get some uh, meat, let's say. And it's a race against the clock to get from this the checkout counter to your freezer, to your refrigerator. So this oppressive heat doesn't make that meat just rot. The Lord's Supper operates like a refrigeration system for our faith and thus preserves our fellowship. When we're out in the heat of this world, our faith is just constantly melting. The coolness of our faith in Jesus' death is constantly escaping. And as it does, our selflessness goes away, and selfishness starts to fester in its place. The Lord's Supper protects us from rotting by forgetting the selfless death of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what Paul talked about in Romans 5, Starting at verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While you were ungodly, Jesus died for you. While you were an enemy of God, Jesus gave his body to be broken for you. While you were still a sinner, Jesus spilled his blood to reconcile you to God the Father. The Lord's Supper reminds us regularly that we are undeserved recipients of lavish, lavish mercy and grace and blessing. There's nothing so humbly, so humbling as receiving undeserved mercy and grace and blessing. It's humbling to receive blessings that we do deserve. It's especially humbling to receive blessings that we don't deserve. You know, we have a deacon's fund, and it's here so that we can help people who have trouble paying bills, have trouble making ends meet. We all contribute to it when we can contribute to it, and it's there for us whenever any one of us needs it. That way, We take care of each other, and it's part of our fellowship. The biggest hurdle we have often in helping people with the deacons fund is that none of us wants to receive it. Everybody loves to give to it. Nobody wants to be the recipient of it. And often I think a lot of what is behind that is pride. It feels good to give and help someone else, but we don't want to be needy. We don't want to be the one that needs to receive help. Well, we all very likely will one day be in that position. That's just one small example of how humbling it is to receive, to receive blessing. Now, can you imagine if you were someone who actively preached hatred against our church and actively vandalized our church and worked against us, and we still came and helped you with the deacon's fund and saved you when you were in financial trouble? How humbling that would be. That's more the picture of what we receive in Christ. We were actively against God, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Now, imagine that that just happened yesterday. Imagine that he just died for you yesterday. Brutal, bloody death on the cross for you. And you receive that death and receive forgiveness through it and reconciliation with God through it, even though you know you don't deserve it because of your sin. Now, how can you then today look down your nose at anybody else in arrogant disdain? It's just not possible. The two are too contradictory, receiving the grace of God through Jesus and then withholding love from brothers and sisters in Christ. It can't be. It can't go together at the same time. I love the picture of this, imagining Possibly, maybe even probably, owners and slaves sitting around the same table together partaking of the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine that? It's kind of like your boss and employee relationship, but more so united together around the one bread and the one cup of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper fills us with divine mercy and grace potent enough to dissolve every dividing wall. Until the end, when a united people from every tribe, tongue, and nation emerge in the kingdom. This is why we can never allow division in the church. We can never embrace uh, segmentation of the church. In their case, it was financial. Often in the modern American church, uh, it can still be financial. Maybe it's more racial or cultural or even preferential. I mean, we'll, we'll divide up just based on music preference and not worship beside each other. The blood of Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ, bl- brings diverse people together in humble, loving unity. Now, there's a lot of discussion about how to go about eating the Lord's Supper. You know, you know how we do it. Uh, sometimes we do it differently where people come forward and take a piece off of, a, of bread and, and dip it into the juice. And we do it like that sometimes. Some churches do it more like I described in a fellowship hall around tables. Um, there's a lot of discussion about the right way to do the Lord's Supper. And the reason there's a lot of discussion about it is because the Bible just doesn't get real precise about exactly how to do it. The point is to do it, and to do it remembering Jesus Christ. I think the way we do it is perfectly fine. I think there might be benefits to doing it that way in the fellowship hall. But we need to do it in a worthy way. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. We want to eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. We see these almost bizarrely severe consequences for eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And here I feel I need to correct uh, an impression that I have probably given you in the past regarding the Lord's Supper. I think I have often approached it and perhaps led you to approach it with a sort of self-examination that um, may be a little off base, to eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy way is not to turn inward in a nitpicking, introspective, uh, self-inflicted guilt trip over all your sin. Here, to eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner is, is something more specific than that. Let's read it again. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Self-examination is appropriate and it is important if we're not going to eat the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. But look at verse 29, which clarifies a little bit this self-examination. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So anybody that eats the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way is in danger of some pretty severe consequences. So we all need to examine ourselves and so eat of the Lord's Supper. Because anybody that eats the Lord's Supper without discerning the body, discerning the body. I think this is the key phrase. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, if you have sin in your life, just any sin, any general sin, I do want you to confess that sin before God and ask for forgiveness and repent. I do think that is an important prerequisite for taking the Lord's Supper. But I don't actually think that's what this is referring to. And I'm sorry if I've ever given you an intense guilt trip before the Lord's Supper, because in reality, that goes contrary to what we're doing. Yes, you need to take your sins seriously, confess and repent. But you do not need to be perfect to participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is specifically designed for imperfect people who have found forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ. What we need to do is make sure we are discerning the body correctly. Judging the body correctly. As important as this is, you'd be surprised at the range of interpretations you would find if you study this. Um, there's not a, an exact consensus on what he's referring to because Paul talks so much about the body in this book. So if you just look at the immediate context, it seems like a no-brainer. He's talking about the body of Jesus Christ on the cross, broken for us, represented in the bread. But, going through the whole book, you see Paul talks a lot about the body of Christ, the church. In fact, he flows right out of this thought into chapter 12 where he talks about the church as the body of Christ with manifold gifts and different people, all who are many becoming one body. And he doesn't clarify exactly what he means here. Now, I'd like you to look back into chapter 10. I think he kind of means both. In chapter 10, he's warning them against idolatry. And down in verse 16, he says this, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a sharing in or fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or sharing or fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. See the issue he's trying to correct in the Corinthian church is that they were missing the reality about Jesus' broken body and they were missing the reality that his broken body makes us one body. Even if we seem very different from one another. Even if if you're an owner and he's a slave, In Jesus Christ, that doesn't matter. You're one body with all other believers. Jesus' broken body unites those who would receive it into one body. And I think it's a failure to discern that dynamic that could cause us to eat the Lord's Supper in this unworthy manner, the way they were eating it in an unworthy manner. Now, if you're like me, I'm just going completely off my notes now. I have so struggled to bring this to you for some reason. But if you're like me, that may not resonate. It may not seem like an issue. And I suspect that one reason that it might not is because we are all culturally cut from almost the exact same cloth as a people, Doolins Grove Church. There's not a lot of diversity among us here. If you look around, there's shades of difference, but it's all very similar. We're all um, somewhere in the middle class range, um, all pretty much the same race, same ethnicity, um, all from kind of similar family situations. I know there's variations, but kind of similar. So if we try this strict interpretation of exactly what this is talking about, it doesn't seem immediately like it resonates, but I think it does. I think the problem is, I think we have taken what they were doing here to an extreme, to such an extreme that we can't even see it anymore. So they sat around tables segregated from those who were different from them, especially socioeconomically. Okay, but in the Corinthian city, there was just the Corinthian church. It was just the one church. So all the Christians were there. Now, how many churches did you pass on your way from your house to meet here this morning? I mean, really think about it. Robert says maybe one because he walked here from the neighborhood right beside us. Most of us probably pass several churches if you live further away. So one of the blessings of being an American Christian is that we get to practice our Christianity openly. And there's many, many Christians around. And so we have lots of different local church bodies. And I think that's good in a lot of ways. Um, but one thing that it has allowed for us is to take that table segregation to a whole other level. Where now we just funnel into churches of sameness together. And we shop until we find the church where we feel like we fit in the best It's like being in the cafeteria at high school and you've got your tray and you just kind of keep walking until you find the table of the people that look like you, and we kind of tend to do that as Christians. Now, that's understandable, and I'm not saying that in a condemning way, but I think that's why this passage, when interpreted very strictly by exactly what it's talking about, may not feel like it resonates as much. I think this is a, a bigger issue than just our congregation, I don't see a lot of you shunning each other because you don't make as much money. Okay. But I do think that we can very easily forget about our brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't a part of our local fellowship, uh, who are in very great financial distress. And so we can enjoy our fellowship meals and laugh and drink and, and they don't have what we have. I had decided not to go down that route. And so my notes now make no sense to pick up from where I am right now. This is one reason to hesitate about the movement to create various subculture churches. You know, this is why I didn't want to go down this road, but here I am. And we prayed about this together, so I have to trust that. Um, I understand like a cowboy church or a biker church is a good outreach. Like it would get people to come and that there's benefit there for, for sure. And I've met a preacher from a cowboy church and he seemed great. I mean, he's a brother in Christ for sure. But why, why do we have to separate by subcultures? Isn't the glory of Christ the fact that it brings us all, the diversity of us all together? I mean, what if, what if we genuinely went out there and evangelized, just the people around us in our spheres, at work, in the grocery line, and that whole rich diversity of people is what we started to see come to Christ and get baptized into our church. And our church just began to look more and more diverse with all the different kinds of people that are drawn to the glory of God through the goodness of Of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be beautiful and lovely and wonderful? And that's every tribe, tongue, and nation is what this is all heading toward. In the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be this beautiful diversity. This is another reason to hesitate at the idea of um, designing worship services for people of specific musical tastes. And again, I understand all the logic that goes into it. I don't mean that condemning in any way, but do we really need to separate based on if we like uh, fast-paced loud music or slow-paced quiet music? Can't we all just worship together? And I'll, I'll sing to your music sometimes and you sing to my music sometimes. I think that would be the better way. I think that would be better. I think that would be more faithfully working out of the truth of the unifying effect of the gospel. The fact that Jesus' body all broken up unifies his body the church. Where do I go from here? I'll go to 1 John and I'll end on that note before we partake in the Lord's Supper. You know, when Jesus, if you want to go to First John, you can. When Jesus was praying in, in John chapter 17, you know, a lot of his prayer was for the unity of the church, that the people who would follow him would become one the same way he was one with the Father. John recorded that, and then John records these words in First John. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother... Is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And then over in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then one more over in chapter 4, starting at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just means he absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Before we eat the Lord's Supper together, I just want to remind you, through Jesus Christ, we have received God's love and his forgiveness and his grace and mercy. It's not that we loved him first, it's that he loved us first. God wants us to receive all that and all the full blessings of it. And if we will, we will necessarily then begin to transmit that same love to others. In the church, outside of the church, we will be loving people. And so if you are here and you have an unloving spirit about you for some reason, if there's somebody in this fellowship especially that you have a grudge against, that you just can't let it go, somebody you've not forgiven, um, somebody that you look down on and gossip about, whatever it may be, don't participate partake in the Lord's Supper until you repent of that. It's totally contradictory to partake in the Lord's Supper while being unloving toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we'll eat the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave his body for us. He gave his blood for us. He established a new covenant between us and God. And so we come together remembering that because of his broken body, we who are many are one body. So I'd like to pray. I appreciate you sitting together. I wanted to be close together for the Lord's Supper today. I'll pray, and then uh, Scott and Tom will serve the bread and the drink. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ, and I just pray that you would straighten out any tangles in our minds about what your word says in regard to the gospel, in regard to the Lord's Supper, in regard to our fellowship as a church. And as we partake of these elements, let us remember Jesus' death for us. Let it be a way of us proclaiming even to one another that he died for us. We share in that blessing, we share in that gift. In Jesus' name, amen.